Well, good morning, Fellowship Church friends and guests. Welcome to worship this morning, and the Lord be with you. I hope that you have already received a hearty fellowship welcome as you walked into the building this morning from greeters out there, or if you're with us online this morning in the chat boxes alongside that. I want to offer, in addition to our greetings to one another, a greeting from God this morning. However you have arrived in this place this morning and whatever you have brought with you, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Uh, This week is a week of a holiday. And you know what holiday it is, right? We'll say it together. Yeah, there it is. We'll say it together on three. One, two, three. Reformation Day. Oh, what happened? (laughs) Halloween and Reformation Day. Some 506 years ago was the time when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to that wooden door of a church in Wittenberg, Germany, and so began the Protestant Reformation. And uh, this morning, as we begin our worship together, uh, we're going to acknowledge together one of Martin Luther's favorite psalms, which was Psalm 46. He merged that song with a bar tune, and out came, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Uh, so we're going to sing that in just a minute, uh, but first we're going to join our, uh, together our voices for a call to worship with that psalm, Psalm 46. So would you stand with me? We'll do this responsively. I'll be the one, you be the all, and we start together. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is in the midst of the city. It shall not be moved. God will help it at the break of day. Nations are in an uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow. He shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations, says the Lord. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Let's worship together.
His love be the friend. 
Friends, you may be seated. As Pastor Ross mentioned, today is Reformation Sunday, and a central leading figure in that Reformation was Martin Luther. Martin Luther was a man who was highly aware of sin and brokenness in ourselves and in our world. But along with that awareness of sin, Martin Luther also understood and embraced the unearnable love of God. And he helped articulate for a new generation the good news that our salvation is in Christ alone, through faith alone, by grace alone. So this morning, our long shadow prayer, a borrowed prayer from somebody who has cast a long shadow in our faith, is from Martin Luther. And the words will be on the screen. And so I invite you to pray it with me responsively. I will be the one and you can be the all. Let's pray together. Behold, Lord, an empty vessel that needs to be filled. I am weak in faith. I am cold in love. I do not have a strong and firm faith. O Lord, help me. Strengthen my faith and trust in you. I am poor. I am a sinner. With me, there is an abundance of sin. Therefore, I will remain with you, from whom I receive, but to whom I may not give. Amen. I invite you to stand once more as you're able, and let's sing together the Lord's Prayer.
of God's kingdom with these guys playing, isn't it? Come on. That's awesome. Thank you, uh, band and orchestra. It is because of Christ's life, death, and resurrection that we have peace with God and peace with one another. The peace of Christ be with you, Fellowship Church. Please share a sign of Christ's peace as you feel comfortable. It is great to be together again this Sunday morning, Fellowship Church. My name is Nate Skipper, and I'm one of the pastors here where our mission as a congregation, as a community, as a people, is to love God and others as an accepting community centered in Christ and focused on developing faithful followers of Jesus. If you are new or if you're visiting with us, welcome. We are glad that you are here. If you'd like to make yourself known to us uh, in case we miss you, there are some connection cards that you can fill out online or uh, at the back of the sanctuary, there's some cards uh, on the tables or at the Welcome Center uh, following the service. Well, this morning we get a chance to celebrate a little bit some of the things of this past week. We had two kind of cool events. One was last night, there was a trivia night that uh, sponsored or supported some of our high school mission uh, experiences this summer. And how cool was it that all of the winners uh, maybe were here at the first service, not at the second service, but they, they kind of had a little strut in their step. Uh, and we uh, give thanks for their wisdom and their uh, savviness uh, when it comes to trivia. But we also on Wednesday night had a chili cook-off here at Fellowship Church that was accompanied by a fall fest, maybe more importantly, the fall fest, that we did not let the rain deter us, uh, but we still enjoyed a fun evening. And there were a couple people that made some killer chilies, that, and we even had a chance to vote for them. So I got to give a little shout out uh, to Bert Bronius, Les Tharp, and Nathan and Abby Price for uh, winning at the chili cook-off. Well done uh, to those folks. What a hoot. And we will continue to meet uh, every Wednesday evening uh, through the middle of December-ish. Uh, you can still jump in and join uh, many of the classes. There's actually a new class that's starting, though, this Wednesday uh, on eschatology with end times, you might say, uh, uh, hosted by our very own Suzanne McDonald. Uh, so be sure to jump in on that or one of the other uh, opportunities on Wednesday evenings. Speaking of new things, next Sunday we are going to uh, transition to a new edition of our uh, Casting Shadows series that we're in uh, called This Is Us, which is an ex exploration of the values of Fellowship Church, things that we are and that we want to be ever more. Uh, and one of those is the, the value of being real, which is taking God seriously and not taking ourselves too seriously. Uh, and we will be uh, giving you a specific invitation, uh, an opportunity, you might say, to uh, not take yourself too seriously next week as we are going to be exploring the decade of the 70s with music and hopefully with dress. Come on, you're going to sport some bell bottoms next week or whatever uh, is 70s attire, but uh, dress your 70s attire next week. We'll be uh, uh, praising with some uh, set music from the 70s. Also, speaking of something that's coming up, uh, Linda Milanowski, uh, uh, the president of our congregational, is here to share a little uh, announcement and maybe a, 
a somewhat uh, real and awkward, uh, a little awkward announcement for me to be up here to hear. But, uh, you know, but anyway, Linda, it is. But is I'm here. so glad you're up here, and yes. I don't have to be up here alone. Yes. Uh, last time I was here, I was we were talking about Pastor Appreciation Month of October, and we hope that you'll continue that appreciation throughout the year to our for our pastors and our staff and all they do to support ministry here. But today, there's also in our what I call our staff handbook, we also have a very tangible way to put that into practice, which is once a pastor is here for seven years, they're eligible to take a three-month sabbatical. And one of our members has reached seven years, and we're so delighted to offer this wonderful opportunity. And um, to Nate, are you looking forward to this? Yes, I am very much looking forward to this opportunity, but it's also uh, humbling uh, to receive such a gift. Uh, and it's shocking that it's already been seven years. Time goes by so fast when we're having fun through, you know, pandemics and pastoral transitions. I mean, it feels like it was just yesterday that I started here, you know? He's so gracious. Yeah. <laughs> it is amazing that it's yes. been seven years, and we so appreciate that. Just to kind of recap, though, the purpose of it is, of course, personal renewal. It's extended time with the family, and it is a time to refresh, even um, do some research on some type of ministry that's in, important or a curiosity, and oftentimes pastors come back refreshed in their ministry as well. So today, all I'm doing, we're going to do some, we have a team um, surrounding Nate to support him in the planning of this. At this point, I'm just going to say this is awareness that it's coming up because you'll hear us talking about it. We'll further those plans and we'll come back to you with some more details. But in the meantime, we ask you to lift Nate, his family, and the staff, and the volunteers that he works with to, to uh, just surround them with God's wisdom and support during this planning period. So thank you for that. And thank you, Linda, and for making the announcement and what a, a gift it is uh, to have this opportunity, like I said, but also uh, as we explore kind of the options that will uh, unfold uh, for those three months, we do, uh, I, I do covet your prayers and I'm so grateful uh, for a legacy of a church that values uh, these kind of instance or experiences for their pastors and has been done a couple times before. Uh, and I'm grateful for uh, Ken and JB and Brian who did it before and have kind of paved the way uh, for folks like me. Uh, so thanks be to God. Thanks, Linda. Speaking of legacy of... Uh, One of the things that I've come to really, 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 really appreciate uh, at Fellowship is the generosity of uh, this community, uh, both in uh, the giving of their time, but also in the giving of their financial resources that we might be a light uh, to this world. So one way in which you can participate in that generosity is by uh, the giving bowls at the back of the sanctuary or by giving online. Uh, it's a, a joy to give and uh, you have exhibited that over the years, so I'm grateful for that. In just a moment, the kids are going to be dismissed. Uh, and as they are dismissed, uh, we would like to bless them through song. Uh, if you would feel comfortable, you can put a hand on a shoulder or something to a child near you or just hit, raise your hand uh, as we bless them through this song on their dis way out.
Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so grateful, so grateful that we get to gather together as brothers and sisters, as, as friends to, um, to worship, to sing together, to pray together, to expend, extend peace to one another, um, and to bless our children together, and to um, study the scriptures together. So as we turn toward those scriptures this morning, we pray that you would open our eyes that we might see, that you would open our ears that we might hear, and that you would open our hearts that we might love and obey and follow you forever. In the name of Jesus Christ, we all pray. Amen. Good morning, fellowship. Uh, my name is Tiara, one of the pastors here, if I've not yet met you. Um, and this morning, we are continuing a sermon series that we're calling Casting Shadows. Uh, in this series, we are looking at people who cast a long shadow over the scriptures and a long shadow over the faith. Like today's pair, Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Well, you may not remember who they are. Uh, they cast a long shadow on the story of Israel as a nation. It's because of these two that the kingdom of Israel, uh, united as a kingdom under King David and sustained as a united kingdom under King Solomon, is ripped to shreds. The story of Rehoboam and Jeroboam is a story about two rulers or, or two leaders, if you will. But it's also a story about us. Genesis 1 through 2 uh, tells us that each of us is made in the image of God so that we may rule. Revelation 21 and 22 picks up on this imagery, presenting a picture of the heavenly city descending on earth, God's presence dwelling among his people, and the nations walking by the light of the heavenly city, the, the kings of the earth bringing their glory and their splendor into the city of God. The bookends of the scriptures point to the right rule of creation, but a rule that even in a state of sinlessness is marked not only by God's character, but God's help. Even after the fall, each of us is still entrusted with a portion of creation, a place from which we rule or lead or steward, whether at home with our families or on a team, or, or in a department, or, or in a classroom, or in an organization, or in a dorm, or, or in our sorority, or fraternity, or, or in our community, or neighborhood, or even in the church. And so the story of Rehoboam and Jeroboam isn't just about two leaders or two rulers at the top. It's also about us. It's about how they rule and how we rule, about how they lead and how we lead, about how they steward, and even about how we steward what's been entrusted to us. But it's also a story about the stuff that gets in the way, not just for them, but also for you and I. And ultimately, it's a story about what God does in the midst of it. How do we steward the holy responsibility that's been entrusted to each of us and what does that, what is the way that we steward that responsibility or rule say about each of us? And not only in our successes, but also even in our failures. I wonder if the story of Jeroboam and Rehoboam and their father, his father Solomon has something to teach us about the nature of responsibility and rule as followers of Jesus. So hear the word of the Lord from 1 Kings chapter 12, picking up in verse 1. And Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. And as soon as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard about it, for he was still in Egypt, where he had fled from King Solomon, then Jeroboam returned from Egypt. 
And the people sent and called for Jeroboam. And Jeroboam and all of the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam, your father made our yoke heavy. Now, therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. And Rehoboam said to them, go away for three days and then come back to me. And so the people went away. And then King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men, the mature men, uh, who had stood before Solomon, his father, while he was yet alive, saying, how do you advise me to answer this people? And they said to him, if you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. But Rehoboam abandoned the counsel that the mature men gave him and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. And Rehoboam said to them, what do you advise that we answer this people who have said to me, lighten the yoke that your father has put on us? And the young man who had grown up with him said to him, thus you shall speak to these people who said to you, your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus you shall say to them, my little finger is thicker than my father's size. And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So absurd. Uh, You can tell from the first few verses that this text is complicated. Uh, Even the first few verses make you ask, how on earth did we get here? What in the world is going on? Or as the kids say, who's got the tea? So I want to step back a bit to 1 Kings chapter 10 and 11 because they tell us precisely how we got here. They tell us about a person who cast a long shadow, not only over the story, but also over Rehoboam and Jeroboam, King Solomon. In 1 Kings 10 through 11, we learn quite a bit about King Solomon, some of which you probably remember. Uh, What is Solomon most known for? His wisdom, yeah. Uh, 1 Kings 10 kicks off with the famous story of Queen of Sheba coming to hear Solomon's wisdom and ask him questions that he answers for her. In 1 Kings 10, we also hear about King Solomon's wealth. Uh, Solomon received something like 666 talents of gold each year, uh, the text tells us. Now, we don't give, um, our currency is not talents. We don't entirely understand what that means. I did the math. Um, One talent is 75 pounds of gold. And one pound of gold in our time is worth about $22,372. So one talent is $1,677,900 multiplied by 666, nothing ominous there. And it's a number that won't even appear on your calculator. It has that E, which tells you that you did something wrong in the calculation, at least for me, a non-math person. Uh, Your note in your Bible probably says 25 tons. That's a lot of gold. Even when you don't calculate, it's a lot of gold. Even, and this is what he gets on a yearly basis, uh, even Solomon's home is filled with gold, gold drinking vessels, gold plates. Uh, Even his throne is an ivory throne overlaid, the text says, with the finest gold. Not only that, but a fleet of ships comes every three years to bring him more gold, more silver, more ivory, but also apes and peacocks. Why peacocks? No idea. No idea. (laughs) But 1 Kings also tells us that Solomon has amassed 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen, and he trades horses all over the ancient Near East, and he even imports horses, war horses, from the famous war horse breeders, Egypt. And 1 Kings 11 also tells us that he has 700 wives and 300 concubines. 
In the ancient Near East, alliances were often sealed with marriages. Solomon had made deals, strategic deals and alliances with all the surrounding nations. And to cement these deals, he would take a foreign princess as a wife to the tune of 700 wives who were princesses or daughters of the kings and the rulers that he had made deals with. Now, at first glance, it almost looks like the narrator is bragging about King Solomon's possessions and his exploits. But this is not an episode of MTV Cribs. This is not a tour of a Newport mansion from the Gilded Age. It's actually a critique. Now, why might we think it's a critique? Because gold and Egyptian horses and foreign wives of plenty form a cluster of sorts, one that we find in the Torah in Deuteronomy chapter 17. It's a long text, and I won't read the whole thing. I'll just simply say that it points out three primary things that are forbidden for Israel's kings. First, acquiring many horses, not least of all, from Egypt. You shall never go back there, God says. Or acquiring foreign wives, especially many of them. Why? Because they'll lead your heart astray, God says. Or acquiring excessive silver and gold. Not just some gold and silver, but excessive silver and gold is also expressly forbidden. Now, does King Solomon acquire many horses from Egypt? Yeah. Does King Solomon acquire many or excessive silver and gold? Yeah. Does he acquire many foreign wives? Yeah. Yeah, not only that, but he begins to worship the gods of these foreign wives, we learn in 1 Kings chapter 11. And he leads Israel to do likewise, blending their worship of Yahweh with worship of the gods of the surrounding nations. And the gut-wrenching pronouncement in 1 Kings chapter 11 is that his heart eventually turns away from the Lord. And so God says to Solomon, since this has been your practice, I will tear the kingdom from you and your son and give it to your servant. So Solomon's royal cluster paves the way for someone else's royal opportunity. Now, somewhere in the midst of this, we learn about a guy named Jeroboam. In 1 Kings 11, we learn that Jeroboam was actually a construction worker. He quite literally pulls himself up by his own bootstraps, so much so that King Solomon notices that not only is he a very hard worker, but also a very capable leader. And so Solomon places him over all the other laborers whom we're also going to call construction workers for now. We'll come back to that in a bit. But for now, we're going to call them construction workers. Now, one day, Jeroboam goes on a little work trip, and he runs into the prophet Ahijah. And they're walking and talking together when suddenly Ahijah takes off his very expensive new coat, and he tears it into 12 pieces, and then he tells Jeroboam, take 10 of the shreds that I've ripped. Why? Because you, Jeroboam, are going to rule over the 10 tribes of Israel, Ahijah says to him. And only for the sake of King David will his predecessor, Rehoboam, be left with one tribe, Ahijah says to Jeroboam. But you, God says to Jeroboam, through Ahijah, you, Jeroboam, will rule over all. You will reign over all that your soul desires. And you will do, um, and you will be king over Israel if you would but walk in my ways, if you would do what is right, not in your own eyes, but in the eyes of God. If you do as my servant David did, I will build you a sure and certain house. I will give Israel to you. Now, word travels back to Solomon because he essentially tries to end Jeroboam. And so Jeroboam flees to Egypt where he remains until after Solomon passes away. 
And so our text for today begins somewhere between Solomon's royal cluster on the one hand and Jeroboam's royal opportunity on the other hand. In our text, we find Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, in Shechem, where all of Israel had come to make him king. And we also find an exiled Jeroboam who has returned from Egypt just in time to contend for the throne. And no sooner than Rehoboam puts on his royal garb that has been made fit for his frame, tailored for his frame, Jeroboam, the exile, appears before Rehoboam with all of the assembly of Israel. Rehoboam recognizes the voice of Jeroboam in the crowd. Jeroboam sees Rehoboam in all of his royal splendor, tailor-made for his frame. And as their eyes meet, the tension is so thick that you can cut it with a knife. A hush falls over the crowd, and Jeroboam begins to address Rehoboam. On behalf of the people of Israel, I come to you, son of the king Solomon. Your father has made the yoke of his people heavy. Now, therefore, lighten the load of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you forever, my Lord. And even without the Hebrew, the repetition is pretty obvious. Your father made our yoke heavy. Lighten the heavy service or the hard service of your father. And in case you didn't hear us the first time, we're talking about his heavy yoke on us. What could Solomon possibly have done to make their load so heavy? Well, remember, Solomon lived in relative peace throughout the 40 years of his reign, largely because his father, the warrior king of Israel, had managed to secure, uh, secure the borders of Israel, expand the borders of Israel, secure the borders of Israel, uh, which kind of gave Solomon a leg up as a leader because that meant that he could spend his time building the kingdom rather than securing the kingdom through battle. And boy, did he build. King Solomon built the first glorious temple of Israel, which took seven years to complete. And then he built his own palace for himself, which took 13 years to complete. And after 20 years, I mean, some of us would complain about six months in our home, right? But after 20 years of building and renovations, he then begins to build and restore several cities, uh, which we read about in 1 Chronicles 8. I'm not going to go through all of those, but it's a lot of building projects. Uh, every color is a different building project. Now, 1 Chronicles tells us that King Solomon did not draft any of his own people, any of his own fellow Israelites as servants or laborers for these building efforts. But 1 Kings 5 says, yeah, he did. Remember in 1 Kings 11, Jeroboam is placed in charge of the forced laborers. That means that he's the foreman, he's the supervisor, he's the person who schedules them. He's the person who sends them away from their families for a month at a time so that they can build, not in the northern kingdom where they, or the northern part of the kingdom where they live, but in the southern kingdom of David. This word used for forced labor um, is actually sebel. I repeat after me, sebel. Sebel, it's a word that means uh, burden. Uh, so you could translate it as forced labor. You could also translate it very crudely as burden bearer. Uh, these people uh, are burden bearers. Now remember in Genesis chapter one, human beings are image bearers, uh, image bearers of Yahweh. But under Solomon, in Solomon's reign, they become burden bearers. Now these are craftsmen, artisans, if you will, people who work with their hands, proud people who love what they make. But their labor has become toil and a burden. So how do you go from artisanship to burden? Well, there's some pretty clever wordplay buried in the text as well. Reduce the heavy yoke your father placed on us, the people say to Rehoboam. The word here is uh, kaved. I repeat after me, kaved. 
It's a word that means heavy or burdensome or weighty. And now those of you who know your Hebrew, uh, you know that kaved is just one little vowel change over from the root word uh, kavad. Uh, repeat after me, kavad. Kavad is the Hebrew word for um, also weight, um, also um, um, burden, but it's actually the word uh, for, for glory. Uh, as in when Solomon finishes the temple and um, God's glory fills the temple, it's weighty, it has gravitas, it's glory, uh, it's kavad. Um, we see this word over and over again in the scriptures. Notice the wordplay. The theological sense you get here is that laboring for Yahweh's glory it was craftsmanship, it was artisanship, but laboring merely for King Solomon's human glory becomes toil and burden. God's people go from image bearers to burden bearers. Peter Lightheart, pastor and theologian, he comments on this text and he says it this way, that Solomon's kingdom is full of glory, but while achieving his own glory, he makes things heavy for the people. Solomon turns to Egypt for horses and chariots and worships the gods of the nations and transforms in doing so his kingdom into an Egyptian tyranny from which Israel seeks to be liberated. Reduce the heavy yoke your father placed on us, the people say to Rehoboam. Now wisely, Rehoboam recognizes that this moment is a royal opportunity for him. And so he asks the people, give me three days, three days, to think about a suitable answer. Now, during those three days, he goes to the wise counselors we read in 1 Corinthians or First uh, Kings 11, uh, who who walked alongside his father all those years. And these wise counselors say to him, "Dude, it's not an unreasonable request. Your dad was absurd. The people are right, and with just a little bit of gentleness, you will win their loyalty forever." Paraphrase. Uh, but something about this answer just doesn't sit right with Rehoboam. He can't abide this answer. And so then he goes, um, he abandons the counsel of, his, of, of the elders, the text says, and he goes and finds his friends, a group of guys who are his own age. And they're, they're pretty much just stuff that like bro movies of the 10th century BC were made of. They're all bravado and, and arrogance and unrestrained chutzpah. And they say to him, this is what you should say to the people. My little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. I'm going to guess you don't need me to find the Hebrew for that for you. I think you got it, uh, even with the language barrier. Uh, Rehoboam very imprudently, though, repeats this phrase to the people, and the elders are like double face palms. It's the worst. What are you thinking? <laughs> Aristotle says that the mean between... Um, the mean between too much anger on the one hand, which is wrath, and not enough anger um, on the other hand, which is negligence, is gentleness. It means not enough anger on the one hand, not being angry at the things that we should be angry about is negligence. And being too angry, over-the-top angry, disordered anger is wrath. But the, the sweet spot, the mean, the virtue that we want is gentleness. Really fascinating. If you speak good words to the people, the elders say, they will serve you forever. Thomas Aquinas picks up on this theme and he says similarly, uh, he doesn't use the word gentleness, but he says meekness, that meekness is the antidote to anger, that we would exercise restraint through meekness or gentleness. If you would speak good words to the people, they would serve you forever, the elders say. But Rehoboam doesn't listen and in fact, he ends up sounding a lot like Pharaoh. More bricks, more bricks, more bricks, he says to them. 
And the people think he also sounds a lot like Pharaoh because they essentially turn their backs on him. They're done with the house of David, they say. They quite literally, the kingdom quite literally collapses in in Rehoboam's hands. Now, Rehoboam realizes that he's messed up, and so he tries to fix it. And how does he fix it? He sends the new supervisor, Adoram, the guy who's supposed to give them their assignments, schedule them, and take them away from their families at least, at least a month at a time. He sends that guy to reason with the people. How do you think it goes? Terribly, terribly, they stone him on the spot, effectively declaring David's house persona non grata. The whole situation is so volatile that Rehoboam quite literally has to flee to the fortress city of Jerusalem. Rehoboam blows his royal opportunity, but there's still hope for Rehoboam. Remember the divine word spoken to Jeroboam through the prophet, you will reign over all that your soul desires. You will be king over Israel if you would just but walk in my ways. And if you would do what is right, not in your own eyes, but in the eyes of God, I will build you a sure house. I will give Israel to you, the prophet says. Jeroboam, the kid who pulls himself up by his own bootstraps, the kid who is quite literally given the kingdom of Israel, his only requirement is that he walk with the Lord as the ruler of Israel. But almost immediately, the text says, he falters. He says in his heart, if the people go all the way to Jerusalem to worship the Lord in the temple there, their hearts will prove loyal to the royal family and they will kill me and serve Rehoboam forever. Jeroboam has a case of what Thomas Aquinas might call pusillanimity. It's a word, it's a very difficult word to say. Uh, It's a word that means small-souledness. It's when you have a lower estimation of your worth than is actually warranted. How does Solomon see Jeroboam? As a hard worker? As a very capable leader? How does God, the God of the cosmos, see Jeroboam? As the guy that he's going to set over 10 tribes the one upon whom he can build a sure kingdom is how Yahweh sees him. It seems that Jeroboam doesn't see himself in any way like Solomon or God sees him. He's small-souled. To be great-souled would be to see himself the way that he is actually in life. To be presumptuous would be to see himself as more than he's actually capable of. Both presumption and also pusillanimity or small saltness, both of them don't adequately see not just the person, but also God's relationship to the person. Both of them discount God because one of them thinks that they don't need God and the other one thinks that even God's help can't make them a good leader or capable or anything. In our text, you might say that Jeroboam is pusillanimous, not only because he thinks too little of himself, but he also thinks too little of God's help. And so because of that, he builds two calves and an altar on which to make sacrifices to them. He says to the people, these are your gods who brought you up out of Egypt. And not only does he present them with golden calves, but he consecrates priests who are not from the tribe of Levi and creates non-sanctioned feast days. Jeroboam, just like Rehoboam, completely blows his royal opportunity. Interestingly, Rehoboam and Jeroboam are actually a lot alike. You see, both of them are handed circumstances that they didn't ask for. Rehoboam didn't ask his dad to marry 700 wives and follow after their gods or or to trade horses with Egypt or to amass too much gold for them himself or, or to conscript thousands of their fellow Israelites into forced labor. You almost have to pity the guy. 
because he knows he's going to fail. He knows the kingdom is going to fall apart in his hands. And even worse, he knows that everybody knows that he's going to fail. And every ounce of this is simply the hand that he's dealt. Circumstance is what we're given through no fault of our own. But character, character is what we do with it. Rehoboam doesn't fail because of the circumstance. He fails because of his, because of his character. Here's what I mean. Somewhere along the way, Rehoboam learned that his dad, through his dad, that the people of Israel weren't image bearers of Yahweh, but merely burden bearers. You can't watch your dad enslave thousands of your fellow countrymen and women and assume that it doesn't shape your own character and your own attitudes on some level. Rehoboam rules like a tyrant, obsessed with power over the people rather than as a king focused on their preservation and on their welfare and on their good and on their purpose and their mission before God as God's people in the world. And even, even when he's advised to do otherwise, he becomes a victim not to fate and not to a prophecy, uh, but to his own character. As Reverend, Skipper, as Reverend Skipper said wisely last week, we make our habits and then our habits make us. Rehoboam's character becomes marked by a kind of tyrannical arrogance, so much so that God can literally set the expiration date of the kingdom by it. Circumstance is what we're given. The character is what we do with it. And then there's poor Jeroboam, who also didn't ask for any of this. His dad is some guy named Nabat, which is code for not the king, and suddenly he's in it. And every day he feels his own inadequacy, the inadequacy of his lineage, of his upbringing, of his preparation. He can't pick the right forks. He doesn't wear the right clothes. He doesn't, he doesn't know the difference between Bach and Mozart. He mispronounces words when he's giving speeches to the people. You almost have to pity the guy. He's a fish out of water. And even worse, he knows that everyone else knows that he's a fish out of water. And he like Rehoboam, also rules like a tyrant, probably the worst kind of tyrant, like a tyrant who is small-souled, but a tyrant nonetheless. Like Rehoboam, he's obsessed with his own power and sway over the people rather than a king focused on their preservation and their welfare and their good and their purpose and their mission as the people of God in the world. Circumstance is what he's been given, but his character is what he chooses to do with it. I think we're also a lot like Rehoboam and Jeroboam, not because we say harsh things to people who gather on our lawns and, and not because we build golden, golden calves and place them in front of our families, but because we all have an earthly inheritance just like they do. Perhaps the stuff inherited from family and other people that we look up to, not just the good stuff and the good traits, but also the attitudes and the practices and the instincts and the addictions that could rip everything apart if we're not careful. We don't just have an earthly inheritance, but we also have our own insecurities and inadequacies, the, the stuff, the deficiencies that make us feel like a loser in a room full of people. If our earthly inheritance is the stuff that we get that we don't want, our insecurities are the stuff that we don't get and that we don't have that we wish we did. And both can tear us apart, not just us, even the people around us, when they become burdens for others to carry for us. I wonder if what we learn from Rehoboam and Jeroboam isn't merely don't be mean to the mob gathered on your lawn or, or, or don't make golden calves. I wonder if what we learn from them is the power 
and the significance of turning to God who helps us find our way even through the muck of our own souls. Have you ever been on a trail that wasn't marked very well? Or maybe you, you looked up a trail and you saw um, on the directions that this is a trail that required you to be almost an expert at pathfinding. Next slide. Um, our souls are kind of like that. Sometimes it's very clear the path we're supposed to choose. Don't murder people. Very clear, right? Don't kill people. Pretty, pretty clear. Uh, and then there are times when things get a little windy in there. We get a little bit lost. We can't figure out which way to go. And even our own character seems to be working against our ability to discern the right path which is why we need those little things called cairns. They're these stacks of rocks. And if you've ever been lost on a trail and you saw one of those, you're like, oh my gosh, thank you to whoever put this here because it means that I can kind of, you know, get out of here before the night falls. I think we need things like that in the faith journey too. Tools that point the way for us. And sometimes those tools look like just simply hard questions that we ask ourselves from time to time. Like, what did I inherit, both good and bad, from the people in my family, from other people I look up to, from the people who have shaped my life and my leadership, and how is it impacting me and others? Or what insecurities or deficiencies or inadequacies are threatening to engulf me and become a burden to others as well? And ultimately, how is God inviting me to follow him from here? And what is the next faithful step? It might also look like having guides or, or friends who help us find our way, friends who, like Jesus, guard our souls and are invested in our good, friends who, like the elders, rein us in, and friends like Jeroboam needed who could speak good words to him and help him to see himself not overinflated and not, certainly not underestimated, but exactly as the ruler that God placed over his people. The reality is you and I are going to fail a lot and a lot of things. And the reality is, is we're also quite inadequate at a lot of things. But this isn't a cause for fear or shame, but an opportunity to trust, an opportunity to follow, an opportunity to look to the God who guides us, who grants us wisdom, who guides us, because left to our own earthly inheritance and insecurities, we would never find our way off the trail. So we trust and we follow the God who turns even royal clusters into royal opportunities, who turns lowly shepherd boys into great kings, who turns sinners and enemies into friends of his, who turns royal screw-ups into rulers of creation, and who turns peasants into ambassadors of the coming kingdom. In and through the Christ, the royal son of David, right rule of creation is being restored and somehow God entrusts us with carrying that forward. And until Christ returns to complete his restoration, his mercy bears us up and his short grace builds us up such that we get to very humbly practice and also fail and also start over every single morning until our own character is perfected by grace. Would you pray with me? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are so grateful for the love that seeks after us for the grace that redeems us and for the wisdom and, um, and the grace and the mercy that transforms us. We are so grateful that you have entrusted us with so many amazing responsibilities by which we get to not glorify ourselves, but glorify you. And Lord, we are so grateful that you um, were so kind to us and spoke good words of grace and truth to us that we get to follow you all the days of our life in ways that not only reflect um, the greatness that you have endowed us with, but the even greater glory that is to you, our Lord, our God. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.
friends, today we've heard of the adventures of kings who did not live up to their calling. But there is a king who did and does live up to the true calling, one who did not grasp for power, but sacrificed and served. And his name is Jesus. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I invite you to stand and let's sing together in praise.
Let's pray together. King of kings, Lord of lords, Alpha and Omega, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are humbled by your great goodness and majesty, O God, in making this world and generously giving gifts to it in redeeming the brokenness and in, save, and in saving once and for all. And we're also humbled by the simple beauty of the small part of the created order that we get to call home for the fall season and the cornucopia of colors all around for blue skies and white clouds, for green grass and misty lakes, for bountiful harvest and hibernating plants, maybe most of all for the changing leaf colors that can remind us of you and your role in this world. And so we bless you, O oh God, for bright yellow hickory tree leaves that remind us of how your light continues to shine into this world. And we celebrate with Christian and Cecilia, our mission partners in the Netherlands, for adult baptisms and good ministries that were featured in this week in their national newspaper. For new life, not just in baptisms, but for Marcy and McCall at the birth of their daughter. And we celebrate with a number of other couples in our church who are experiencing or expecting a baby. We celebrate with those who had recent cancer-free reports like Nancy and Marshall. And we celebrate with those that got to return home after hospital visits for Marilyn and Nancy, Emmy, Shauna, Linda, and Sandy. Shine brightly, O oh God, in their lives as we celebrate with them. We also appreciate the vividness of bright red maple tree leaves. And remember that you made us an emotional people who can blaze brightly and sometimes with frustration and anger that spills over. And so we pray for places in this world where anger and frustration have boiled over, like Israel and Gaza, where war continues and even intensifies. Our hearts are broken for the loss of life, for relentless violence, for horrific images that we see. It's so hard and so painful, so confusing that we don't even know exactly how to pray. We also pray for fighting in Myanmar, where an insurgent rebel group yet again seeks power and control through violent means. We pray for homeless and houseless, refugees and immigrants, for all those who find themselves so desperate that fleeing from home is the best option available. And we pray for them as predators seek their own gain in violent and hateful ways towards them. May your gentleness be the antidote to this excessive, fiery anger. We see in mighty oaks a steady consistency and a lackluster browning of their leaves. May their dull colors remind us of the grief we as a society carry. We pray for victims in Mexico and beyond affected by Hurricane Otis. We pray for many who have lost loved ones to cholera in southern parts of Africa, especially Zimbabwe. And we pray for those who continue to grieve the loss of a loved one here in our own community, including families of some of our own from fellowship like Arlene and Ruth, Judy and Elaine. May your spirit surround all those who grieve. And, O oh God, we are mindful of the constancy of evergreen trees, and no matter the season, remind us of the hope that we have in you. No matter the circumstance in heat or cold, in rain or dryness, their steady presence remind us of your steady presence in our lives. And so we pray for all those who carry ongoing burdens, like those who struggle with depression, anxiety, chronic pain, or sickness. May your constant love surround them amidst whatever they face. Lord, in your mercy, hear these, our prayers, those both that we've spoken and those that are written on our hearts. May the changing seasons be a reminder of your steadfast love amidst all of the human experience. All this we offer in prayer in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.
Please stand with us as we sing once again. Brothers and sisters, friends, one final blessing for us this morning.
May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Go in peace. Thank you.